During a 2020 TED Med presentation, Ann Basting was wonderfully referred to as a creative gerontologist who was transforming human lives by focusing on infusing the arts and humanities into care settings. A scholar and an artist, Anne's innovative work has been recognized with a MacArthur Genius Fellowship, an Ashoka Fellowship, a Rockefeller Fellowship, plus many other major grants. She is the author and editor of multiple books, including The Penelope Project, an arts-based odyssey to change elder care, Forget Memory, Creating Better Lives for People with Dementia, and the focus of today's podcast, Creative Care, a revolutionary approach to dementia and elder care. Anne is a professor of theater at the Peck School of the Arts at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Also, founder and president of Time Slips, a nonprofit organization which is dedicated to fostering an alliance of artists and caregivers to bring meaning and joy to later life through creativity. Time Slips is an international nonprofit with certified facilitators in 47 states and 18 countries. As Anne would say, the arts are a way of being in a relationship, of seeing and shaping the world. My work brings the tools of imagination and creative expression to care relationships and systems in order to foster healing through community building. We cannot heal without story. I'm Bruce Devereaux, and welcome to The Creatively Engaging, with my guest, Anne Basting. Welcome, Anne, to the podcast. And I have to say, I love your new book. It's fantastic. Aww. I loved it so much. I think I've given away nine copies of it so far. <laughs> I have the Kindle version that I use as a reference, Aww. and I just purchased the audiobook. And it's fabulous in the audiobook, but what was amazing to me is that you did the narration for eight <laughs> plus hours. It's true. And I did it by turning our cedar closet in our guest bedroom into a recording studio because the week we were supposed to record it was locked down. So all the recording studios closed. Luckily, Brad, my husband, is a media maker and yeah. figured out how to turn our create a home recording studio. Wow, because it sounds excellent. Yeah. So how long did it take you to record that eight hours? It was about, I think, four days, coached by a really, really talented producer. Everything was remote, so he was he was remote, recording remote going through with every single line. Nope. Stop. Go back. Okay. It just amazing. So it's slow going and strange to sit in your closet and read the book that you, you know, poured your heart into for a year, Yeah, <laughs> but really great, a great experience. I'm really happy that I got to read it. Oh yeah. It's fantastic. So in your book, it was really interesting because the reader or the listener really gets a sense of you as a young woman, your wonder and your imagination. I must say I was surprised about the mean girl experiences that you speak about <laughs> in the book, but that was great because it really connected you creatively with the older adults at the time. Yeah. And the final sort of meeting that you had with your grandmother, Alice, in the care center that would help you see the importance of connecting with those who are struggling to share. Now, your description of that meeting and the voice calling out in the hallway was almost prophetic, like the help, the help. How would you say that experience with your grandmother was a defining moment that moved you into this work? You know, consciously, I think in all the stories that I tell in the book, I, I want to be really care. I wanted to be really careful to depict the, the loss and the fear and the challenges that can come with living with profound disability, yet also the the joy mm -hmm. and the the wonder that are are married in those moments. They're inextricable in those moments. And I, I think 
that was really one of those first moments when I realized that I, I didn't want to go to the nursing home to visit her. I wasn't, you know, that, that, that echoing down the hallway of the woman calling, help me, help me. And, and if you, if anyone spent time in nursing homes, that's not an uncommon refrain. Right. And yet at the same time, this experience was transformative in that I learned from Alice, from my grandmother, that I was an active part of her being able to relay her stories and to, to, to be herself. Mm-hmm. And I had to go into it, uh, into that moment and, and really find her and be with her in order to, to be that conveyor, uh, facilitator of self. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, I think, the first moment. You know, I had other, I describe other moments earlier, but I think that's really the first moment where those two things are really, really profoundly linked. Yeah, yeah, it really came together to impact you and set a course. Yeah. Certainly. So in my last two interviews, I interviewed Dr. Aaron Blythe and Dr. Susan McFadden. So in those two interviews, we had a, a common theme. We spoke about the global changes that are starting to happen around aging, you know, increasing lifespans, decreasing birth rates, changing family relations and obligations, and and how this will create sort of a new set of realities for us down the road. Through Aaron's specific lens, he really looked at the caregivers and how these changes will affect the caregivers. And Susan really spoke to it in the capacity of communities. So I know that you question how we'll move through this changing landscape. And how do you see the creative care movement being a needed force to assist our navigation through these changes? I would add another component, a couple components, of course, to this changing moment. There's declining birth rate, the general aging of um, cultures across the world. We're also heading toward uh, singularity. We're heading toward artificial intelligence and the moment of really intense machine replacement of human beings. There's also climate change and these other issues that are all, you know, human sustainability and things like that. Huge issues that are all happening simultaneously. And the reason I bring up singularity and artificial intelligence is that you can already feel that there is a push toward the technological solution Mm -hmm. for the changing demographics and the intensive needs in aging. And you can see it in countries like Japan that that don't have an immigrant base, have a profoundly shrinking population youth-wise. And I think we're facing a question of what what is the role of a human being? Mm -hmm. And I'm in really fascinating conversations with people about that. And I, m- I mentioned it a little bit in the book. I think we're looking back at, like, say, the hierarchy, right? Maslow's hierarchy and saying, we care. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what separates us. <laughs> right. We care for each other. Care is reciprocal. It helps both sides of the care partnership. In creative care, I position care as generative. It is something giving, not depleting. And I think that, to me, is is a reason for hope. Mm-hmm. And we need to make a decision, which you can feel happening a little bit right now coming out of the pandemic, that we're going to value that instead of just devalue it. That's kind of what I see. I'm very, you know, I, I see it. Us, the the pandemic showing us that we were have that we have a crisis of meaningfulness in our care system. People just stopped flourishing, even if they were physically protected, if they didn't have meaning and purpose in their lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that creative care supplies that sense of meaning and purpose in people's lives. And you know, to touch back a little bit, you were talking about the technologies and what we're seeing around the world and people seeing, can this be a replacement for or an assistant? I remember years ago at the Create Change Institute, I think it was probably in, first one was 2012, right? So I think it was in around 2014, sort of in a time when the iPods and music 
were a big thing. And, you know, everybody was referring to, to the famous video that was happening. And I asked you about that at the time. And I still remember what you said. You said, because <laughs> <laughs> it impacted me. It was like, Bruce, music is great, but we have to be very careful that it doesn't become a, a digital medication. That changed my whole perspective of that use of technology. And, you know, it's not just about the music. It's not just about the technology. It's about those connections that you have. So It's about the relationships. And, you know, Susan McFadden and I had many long conversations about this, about uh, headphones are great because people can hear, which is great. Right. But how can you position them so they're in relationship listening to music instead of isolated listening to music? And mm-hmm. I think that that framework comes from an overly intensified medicalized framing where you're coming up with an intervention for a patient mm-hmm. instead of the root of creativity is about relationship building and community building. So I think you, you know, you have to figure out how the music can function within that larger framework of meaning relationship and community. You know, it's harder to measure the impact of a relational intervention, but it's not impossible. (laughs) Exactly. And during your Islands of Milwaukee project, what struck me also, another thing that really stood up to me was when you spoke about uh, elegant invitation. I remember listening to the audio recordings that the people were phoning in the elders living in the community that were phoning in and you played about three of those recordings and they just, I can still hear them in my mind. They were just absolutely beautiful, haunting in a certain way of some of the loneliness, but just so, so powerful and beautiful. And you, at, at that time, I think that's really when you sort of coined the term elegant invitation, I think in around the islands of Milwaukee. So what do you feel is so powerful and important about the invitation? I think it's because older people, people with profound disabilities, and dementia in particular, is an experience of increasing isolation. You know, in dementia, it's a cognitive symptom that you're cut off um, from comprehending oftentimes the, the inputs that are coming in. And it's just difficult to have expression. Right. So it ends up being kind of a disease of, of isolation. And also with Islands of Milwaukee, this, the difference in the work that we were doing there was that people were living on their own. They didn't have sort of an infrastructure to encourage them or, <laughs> or you know, incentivize them to be involved. So we had to come up with an invitation that felt low risk enough that someone would say yes and and that they could say yes. So it was accessible. And that, that was the elegance of like, what would it be that you would feel, even if you knew that you were, you had maybe some difficulties in expression that you might say something wrong, um, that it was an intriguing enough invitation that you wanted to respond and you felt safe enough to respond. Mm-hmm. And that that's really the elegance of it. And, and I think too, from the Penelope project, one of the things we started saying was never stop inviting. Just the part of the elegance is that it's, re, it's repeated on a cycle because you never know maybe the first time someone says no, maybe the second time someone says no, maybe the third time they'll say yes. (laughs) You just don't know. Mm -hmm. They're testing it. They're convincing themselves to participate. The way you phrase the invitation is different. They're just feeling different on a different day. Uh, So it's it's the simplicity, the comfort, the sort of wonderment of it, and then um, also the endurance of it all. When you mentioned intriguing, I remember you had stated that at first when the Meals on Wheels drivers would would visit, they'd say, you know, I have this question I'd like you to respond to today. And and there was like people a little hesitant and they didn't want to do it. Well, by about the third or fourth time, the driver could barely get in the door 
and what's the question you know what what what's the you know what's the question today right so that was you could see how they really engaged and loved that connection that they were having with that so so the title of your book creative care is beautiful in its simplicity but could have some people saying i can't do that i'm not creative so what do you say to people that struggle with connecting with a loved one maybe don't feel that they are quote unquote creative and don't feel they could be part of a creative and care engagement i think that is one of the tragedies of our time is that the arts and creativity have been sort of professionalized and removed or people assume that they've been removed from us. Mm -hmm. I really, in the book, talk about two kinds of creativity, capital C, which is kind of a sanctioned way, uh, things that are collected in museums or symphonies or, you know, things we, we consider creative or people we consider creative. But I'm using it in terms of the small C, which is that, Really, it's an innate capacity to play with meaning and create something new in the world that has value. And oftentimes what I'll do is walk people through kind of an inventory of the ways that they like to express themselves Mm -hmm. in the way you dress, in the way you tell jokes or the rhythm of your language, cooking, gardening, All of those things involve creativity. And then once you get that list of sort of the inventory of your own capacity, people people say, oh, clearly I'm very creative. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I just think it's a matter, we talk a lot about boosting people's creative confidence, just the recognition that they have that innate capacity um, themselves and the power of it that they feel in expressing themselves that way. And then imagine the power of turning and inviting someone else to express themselves in that way. So they're just, they're building that layer, they build their confidence, the the recognition and the achievement that they feel of doing what they may have not thought was creative, that it is creative and that they just build on the layers of that and it keeps them engaged and keeps them going. Um, Before the interview, I asked a couple of people and they this one staff wanted to me to ask you this question. And the question was, <laughs> what advice would you give to assist a staff person in going to that creative engagement place for the first time with somebody? The first thing I would say is think back to what gave you joy in your own creativity. Mm-hmm. Do that inventory. Is it making music yourself? Is it dancing? Is it in your own life Where do you feel joy through expression? And use that to invite someone else. We have a lot of preconceived notions of what creative expression is, but when you draw it from your own passion and then turn and invite someone else into it, that's really a great spot to start because you you already know you can do it. The other piece is that that same joy that you get from really being able to express yourself creatively is what you're trying to provide or create a space for someone else to feel. So it's not about someone doing a paint by number or completely copying something. It's about figuring out how to create a space to invite the person's own imagination to express itself. And there's, there's really simple, now over the years, Time Slips has gotten really good at kind of articulating really clear steps mm-hmm. of creative care. So it starts with this beautiful question or elegant invitation of inviting the person out. Improvisation sort of drives the process forward. And then it's affirmed by what we call proof of listening. So you echo the person's words, their facial expressions, you write down what they say, all the different ways you can think of to show the person that they've been heard and recognized and valued. And that's an, that those three little steps are really sort of a loop that you do to invite the person out into expression. And as you say that, what it made me think of was the beautiful story you tell of Jim and the driftwood 
story yeah. and how you started that engagement. Could you could you just share that with us? Sure. That um, the story of Jim, which is also I tell in the TED Med talk as well. You can see it there. Is really came out of the islands of Milwaukee. We issued questions. We called them questions of the week then, and or questions of the day, and they went out through Meals on Wheels, through telephone reassurance, through human beings who were visiting or providing support to people. Then once the person responded, we would ask if they wanted an artistic house call, a little follow-up. Do they want to go deeper? And Jim was somebody I did an artistic house call with. Mm -hmm. He didn't have any language left. His dementia journey had no language, at least word, word language. So I didn't know if the beautiful or the question of the day approach would work with him. But through observation, I noticed that he, I knew he loved to walk along Lake Michigan, just, just right across the street from me right now. And I knew that he collected driftwood. So I asked him a question he could respond to with movement instead of with words. So I asked him, can you show me how water moves? It's such a vivid memory because when you ask these beautiful questions, if you're really creating space for someone, you don't know what's going to come out. You have no idea. And genuinely, that's what happened. He picked up, surprisingly, picked up a piece of driftwood and just started kind of slowly moving it as though it was on the surface of the water and kind of rolling and he did that with probably three or four pieces of driftwood for a, a movement piece, a dance, if you will, for that probably lasted, lasted a half an hour. His wife was stunned. We were all sitting, standing in the kitchen, and she she looked at me and told me to film it. So we, we took a little video just from my iPhone of it. And then we shared that with the theater company that we were collaborating with, Sojourn Theater. And two of their performers learned his dance and then brought it back and performed it in the in his garden with his wife and neighbor. Actually, she invited the neighbor as well. Beautiful. I believe I've seen photos. Was that the photo that you had on your webpage for a while? Yeah. They looked like the people in the garden. Yeah. You explored Jim's world and what he loved. And so you knew that the lake, the driftwood. So you really set the environment for that creative engagement. And it's probably why it was so successful also, don't you think? Yeah, I think the intense observation that is at the root of improvisation mm-hmm. is really knowing knowing what's in the person's environment, reading signs, feel you know, really observing very closely and figuring out what question will add positively to where that person is and who that person is. When I was getting ready for today, just I ran into some an interview between Charlie Rose and Mr. Rogers. <laughs> and it, it instantly made me think of you, Mr. Rogers. So what I've done is I've just, uh, I'm going to read like a little bit what he says. And he goes, Mr. Rogers, Charlie Rose asked him a question. And he goes, Mr. Rogers states, I'm very concerned that our society is more concerned about information than wonder. In noise rather than silence. And how do we encourage this reflection? I feel we need a lot more wonder and a lot more silence in our lives. And it's important that we're able to do one-to-one with others and be present with the person we are with. So what do you feel it is in our current care world that makes us step away, not see, not imagine a world of wonder or awe? First of all, thank you for that comparison. That's um, quite an honor to be in the in the company of Mr. Rogers. I think it's honestly, I think we are tempted by distraction. 
because distraction takes away worry of, you know, the human condition of mortality and maybe some some issues we don't want to think about. That's the world of information, is the world uh, of distraction. And now, in the last four years at least, uh, in, in the United States at least, uh, the... The world of outrage, you know, you, yeah. I see outrage as almost a distraction from your, through emotional excessiveness, because you can't function. You're, you're distracting yourself with, with that mm-hmm. experience. And the real business of being alive and being in company with other human beings, understanding the meaning of it while we're here. That's the hard stuff. But I think, too, that if there is a way that I think I'm inviting people into that moment in a very earnest way. And I, one of the concepts that I talk about, uh, the, the gym, the story of Jim is awe. And that awe and wonder, of course, are linked. It's, it's an experience of connecting yourself to vastness. And then wonder is almost a byproduct of, of that, where mm-hmm. it the connection to a vastness, to something much bigger than yourself, makes you wonder and, and reframe your own thinking. It leads to curiosity. And traditionally, we, you know, researchers describe access to awe through nature. You know, you can imagine the beautiful landscapes where you live, um, just completely, you are but a a tiny speck in that landscape, right? That is vastness right there. And it leads you to reframe maybe your list of tasks you have to do that day or, you know, the, the worries that you have become reframed in the scope of that vastness. Spirituality is another access point to awe and creativity and the arts are also listed as an access point. I talk about in the book, this realization that also going into deep connection with another human being is also to me a source of awe. The vastness of humanity and the depths of who and what we are through the ages and how, you know, we're just here now, but you know, this this long story of humanity and our capacity and is really a profound experience when you go into this intimate emotional connection with another human being. That connection to vastness, I see you uh, do that on a daily basis through photos yeah. that you're doing. That's an amazing series that you have on Instagram. How many photos have you taken? You know what? I really don't know. And I started it, maybe you remember, it was, I don't actually know, maybe six years ago when we had the polar vortex and we spent in, I'm in Wisconsin, we spent two months, sub-zero, intense cold. And I, I'm like you, I'm a runner and I needed to get outside. So I gave myself this mission to go take a picture of the lake just to force myself out. Um, to get out the door. And yeah. And one of the things I realized is that in that intense cold, the lake was different every day. So even though it felt to me like this was this intense freezer I, I was in and that there was no change and it was one thing, it was just cold. Actually, if you could look at it with more detail, it was profoundly different in its nuances every day. That's what got me kind of addicted to it. And, and then also that feeling of vastness and, uh, and wonder. Well, today's image was beautiful. <laughs> I, I looked so every day. It was beautiful today. Oh, my God. The, yeah. the colors and the light. It's just the horizon there is just 
spectacular. Absolutely yeah. spectacular. Great you know, it's funny because I never know if what the picture is going to be. And it's sort of like, I just stop. I'm like, where's the picture? <laughs> Are you shooting so, them with a phone? Are you it's using just a my phone, phone. To shoot them? Just my phone. Yeah. Wow. They're brilliant. Yeah. To jump to connection to vastness in the sense of care centers, which can be also viewed as a connection to vastness mm-hmm. of your work looks to change our perspective of the care center from a place of tragedy and loss to a place of growth and possibility. Uh, we witnessed that obviously through the Penelope project and now your push to change the care center to look at it as a cultural center was really highlighted in the book through the significant undertaking that you did with the 12 rural Kentucky care centers. and the I Won't Grow Up project, Wendy's Neverland. How did you get something this significant, this type of project off the ground, of this this big, this magnitude? You know, all of my projects start with relationships. And in fact, sometimes I joke that I never do a project that I can do alone. It has to be bigger than me. Um, I have, I plus, you know, I have a lot of limitations. I can't do a lot of things. So This one started because Angie McAllister, who is an amazing human being, um, emailed me and said, you don't know me, but I saw you speak about the Penelope Project and I've seen the documentary. I am in charge of 60 nursing homes. And at the time I'm making that up, I can't remember how many, but it was something like that. She was in charge of all the rural nursing homes in their division. Wow. And she goes, we're going to do a Penelope project thing. I can't do it now because I just got a new job within the company, but we're going to do it soon. (laughs) And so then like a year went by, then she came back to me. She's like, all right, I'm ready. Let's do this. And so we just started talking about why what she dreamed of, what she sees when she imagines her own version of the Penelope project and what story, because I like to use epic stories in order to unpack them. And and that's sort of a new project I'm working on. Why do those epic stories work? I now call them stories we know by heart because you feel those stories. Even if people with dementia can't tell you that story, they know it somehow inside. Um, mm-hmm. the, arch- the archetypes and the themes are so linked in with how the human brain works and human beings are that th- they're felt. These stories are felt and understood. So we picked Peter Pan, partially because Angie had, uh, one of her innovations was putting summer camps in all of her nursing homes. Um, they had 46 of them at the time. And she wanted something that could easily go intergenerational. Um, So we picked Peter Pan. Then just started assembling a team, creating a plan for how this could work across 12 nursing homes, getting writing 27 versions of the same grant until we got it funded. (laughs) It was epic in and of itself. So. So what's happening with it now? You've done the performances. It was a little bit to me of a tragedy in that just as the story of that project was coming out, we hit the wall of the pandemic. Right. And then it became difficult to tell this joyful story of nursing homes that bring in the outside community for an immersive play experience (laughs) because Mm -hmm. they were just being devastated by lockdowns and pandemic and all of that, so much death and loss. So we had to kind of hold that story Honestly, there's a chapter in the book about it. I'm trying to figure out now how the beauty of all that happened in that project can be an inspiration to carry us out of the pandemic into not back to normal, because normal was terrible pretty much, into a new place where care settings can become places of meaning making on the daily, right? On On a daily basis. Well, and I think something of that quality that uh, you and Angie really spearheaded, you know, maybe it, in some ways it's a not a blessing in disguise, but it could be even more powerful, just like you're saying. 
people are going to be so ready for something to inspire and your project will be that door that opens up and, and brings it in again and brings it, you know, just in the right step at the right time. Yeah. So with the Time Slips team, I mean, it was interesting. In 1997 was when you pulled that Marlboro ad out of that <laughs> magazine and started the, the Time Slips story creation process. You plant the seed for it not only as a practice, but an organization now that's working deep into systems change throughout the, the healthcare system, the healthcare, education, and arts. The Time Slips team, which is pretty impressive, I must say. It's, you must be very proud to look at that oh. opening page about us and see all the individuals that you have on that page. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you are always working on tools to bring people into closer relationships with each other. Your latest is the Imagination Kit. Uh, so what inspired those kits and how did the process of that development unfold for you? The Imagination Kits are a little bit of sort of Back in ninety, the early the early days of of my going out and kind of codifying this, trying to ritualize the structure. In some ways, it's what I carried with me. <laughs> they were image prompts, something to write down on. And now we've added the beautiful questions, and on the back of the beautiful questions are thoughtful actions, so that you can develop the responses into something a little bit more. And so it's. With the time slips work over the years, we've one of our main goals is to um, inspire and sort of catalyze people's own creativity. And so we never really wanted to say you have to use these images as prompts or use these things, or because we figured in people's own setting, like say you were working with a group of people who'd emigrated from um, Korea, right? Culturally, that's going to be very different than a group of older American German heritage people in Milwaukee, right? Mm -hmm. So the prompts might not necessarily translate. It's much better to kind of invigorate people's own creativity to identify what prompts would work locally and culturally. But one of the biggest blockages to people feeling confident in just going out and practicing this and making it easy to do was making sure that people had the tools. And we heard over and over again, I just want a kit. Can't you just put it together in a kit? Like, can you please, you know, put this together for me? So we've done it in different ways over the years, but I think the opportunity to do it with Harper Collins, which did creative care allowed us to get to a mass scale. Mm -hmm. Plus we had the support of the Ralph Wilson Jr. Foundation who helped us design it in a person-centered design, a human-centered design way. So for a year, um, staff member, team member, Andrew Morton worked in the Detroit area with a bunch of different family support groups to see you know, what works, what size, what shape, which questions, which images, how does the journal work, all of those things. And so we really got a chance to kind of team design this. So I'm just thrilled. And ultimately, I really see it as a chance to do volume one, volume two, volume three. Mm. And my dream is like gathering partnerships with artists and illustrators of any age, right? Like they could be wow. older people, they can they can be prompts that are fed from the our community as well. So I I see it as something that can go on and on and on in volumes and be something to support people for a long time to come. When would they be accessible for the public? When are they going to be for sale? Are they ready now? Are they starting to ship? They will, they will open up. I think you can pre-order them now. I'm not sure by the time this airs, what, where, what date will be, but they'll be available in early June. Yeah, that's exciting. I, I saw the, um, well, I was chatting with Andrew a couple of times about it and then just seeing the, the photos and images. They look so beautiful. And you know, when you look at something that simple in design, the amount of work that went in to, to creating that. I also think that, you know, to me, good design 
is a demonstration that you value the people um, who it's designed for. And too, for too long, long-term care has suffered from bad design. <laughs> so I'm a real proponent of investing in design and beautiful, make it beautiful to inspire people. And that's a whole other podcast in itself. <laughs> but yeah, that's definitely another yeah another discussion in itself for sure. So your book gives inspiring insights into what is happening with the whole creative engagement universe. You are definitely one of the key players in the center of that universe. There's no doubt about that. But it's also a very personal experience in the book. And I must say the visual image that you created in my mind at the moment when you recognized that your mother was experiencing cognitive change and the salad bowl and all that that salad bowl represented as an object. And it's, it's, it was such a beautiful way that you opened the door for the reader or the listener to step into that experience and to see how beautifully you engaged in that relationship with your mother and honored your mother at that moment. So when you started to write the book, did you realize that it would contain such a powerful personal story? Because your other books have been more about different projects and things that went on and how they were implemented and such. But this this one, you definitely see a different Anne in this book. Yeah. I I. You know, I was a diff- I'm a different Anne because after 20 years of doing this work, mm-hmm. you know, my mother was diagnosed. And what happens is, you know, the I wouldn't say I was ever certain. You know, you in creative care situations, you walk into it open and you don't know what's going to happen. So there's always kind of a vulnerability and a creative risk. Mm-hmm. But with the added emotional layer of it now having this touch very, very closely in, to, to, in my own family, would I, I'd seen a lot of family members not be able to take that leap into imagination because they're protecting the person that was and protecting all those memories. Would I be able to do that? And I, I saw the book as an opportunity for me to carry that doubt into the stories, you know, my own vulnerability, my own uncertainty, if I, I'd be able to pull it off, will, will I, and I still ask myself, will I be able to do this as her situation changes? All you can do is carry the intention to be present and to use these techniques into the moment and forgive yourself if you can't at a given moment. So I think I saw that as a really important part of the story to tell and to also kind of use my my writing skills and my observation skills to to create really vivid moments for people to move through, mm-hmm. um, to, to feel them and to feel those stories. I think this work, as you know, Bruce, is felt. It's hard to explain it to people. But it's easy to it's easier when people can feel it. So I think that's kind of what I was striving for, and what I hope people get from the book. You open the book, uh, telling us the situation that's unfolding with your mother, and you've closed the book with the letter that you write to Ben and Will, which is really powerful. I wrote that to them when Mom first got. Her official diagnosis, we'd known something was up. And it's an earnest attempt to really give them, not protect them from it, mm-hmm. but to give them agency to be part of her support and to to tell them that it might be hard. This experience makes us deeper and better human beings. When I sat to write the conclusion i genuinely didn't know what the conclusion was going to be <laughs> and i it starts it starts with a really really hard story of a murder suicide you know which is you know the 
the depths, the farthest depths of despair I've ever encountered with this condition, that even in that place, that that place, we can't fix that place, but it, those places and those moments need to affirm to us the power of the work that, that we're doing. Because as my friends um, who I had lunch with after that, after reading about that experience, said, the work you're doing is what gives people the hope to keep going. That's why we have to do it. And then I thought the hope to keep going is the next generation. So I need to, I need to include that letter. Yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful, touching finish. And just that hope. Some, so from where you sit today, looking back on all the major changes that have occurred, that have happened, we've gone through the COVID era, which has you know impacted so many older adults and elders and the care and the death and the isolation and loneliness. Where do you feel we're heading out of this? What's your, your sense? In kind of a 34,000 foot view, I see us heading toward the integration. I'll rephrase it to say that I think what the pandemic showed us is that this separation of arts and culture and meaning making in our lives from health and social services doesn't make any sense. (laughs) (laughs) You you need them integrated into the living, breathing moments of your day. You can't have health without a sense of meaning and purpose. And, you know, all this language that we're starting to hear about social determinants of health, that we're all inching our way toward the integration of those things again in our lives. And I I think that's where we're heading. Mm. All the excess death of people, older adults who are isolated, people need each other. They need relationship. They need community. They need purpose. And they need access to meaning making or protecting their physical health doesn't matter. Right, exactly. So is there anything else you'd like to add? And, and just as we near the end, Anne, podcast, I'm going to play one thing for you just before we close out. But if it's, is there anything that you'd like to say in, in closing? I just, I just think in closing that where I find inspiration is that I had that one moment and those moments in my story of discovering the power of this. Now I look, Time Slips has almost a thousand certified facilitators. I find such inspiration in the people who absorb this approach and innovate and apply it in their own way. It is now so rewarding to see people like you, people that you interview, other people across the world who are doing this work and spreading it what I like to call the creative care revolution, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that I, I'm just one little player in it, hopefully instigating and you know, busy trying to catalyze it. The work of people across the world is just thrilling. I, I would say you're more than one little player in it, but uh, <laughs> you've been a beacon, <laughs> you've been a disruptor, which has been great, and you've obviously been a mentor uh, to many. I know that. I was about to quit healthcare before 2012 and I discovered your book, Forget Memory. I was probably two weeks out from saying I've had enough of this, uh, read uh, Forget Memory and then attended the 2012 Institute, which I hope there'll be one maybe in 2022 if if things go well in the world. Yeah, I don't know. We have to ask the time slips team. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. You remember my friend Bill who passed yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. And... Back in the height of COVID last year, in August of 2020, Bill did a recording. And now, for those who don't know, Bill, at the age of 82, completed his time slip certification, became a major ambassador for creative care. I think he bought about 10 books himself. And when he received your handwritten note wishing him well during his illness, he he framed it and shared it with everybody. It was just beautiful. So I have a short recording here of Bill's that I pulled from a section of the podcast that we did. I believe it was episode number two. Truly speaks to a reflection of the work 
that you and your team has started. I think you will really enjoy this. To be creatively caring for somebody else who's in the environment by being aware and watchful and mindful and respectful. And that's a reciprocity. There's lots of things that we can do here while we are discovering and while the new evolution of things is unfolding. Creative caring about one another in times of uncertainty, which is respect, dignity, encouraging, enabling, physical, social, and emotional well-being in our environments is something that everybody can do. Be unafraid of what happens. Be curious. Embrace uncertainty. Now, by the way, you'll feel better if you've got COVID, if you can get wrinkle cream. I mean, it's just ludicrous looking for these external inputs to make our life bearable in uncertainty. The outside in, this is the inside out. So that's kind of a a broad-based perception of an 85-year-old guy who is uh, doing well. Some people have said to me recently, you know, you're really lucky, Bill. You've got terminal cancer, so you don't have to worry about all this shit in the future. And I say, well, if I don't have to worry about it, I'm already dead. The human experience of life is to live it and feel it and experience it right up to the finish line. And so I'm as creatively engaged and, and I'm interested in creatively caring for my friends who are creatively caring for me. And the power of that is absolutely astonishing. And there's young people. that There's no boundaries at my door. I don't even lock my house anymore. And they come. And it is priceless. So embrace uncertainty. Become a creative carer. This is the great opportunity here. It's huge for human beings to embrace the conscious awareness of how, how our egos and our arrogance is not only destroying our world, but it's separating us from each other. What a special guy. So we miss him greatly, that's for sure. It's been a yeah. big loss. So. Yeah. So, Anne, I must say it's great to see you. You too. Thank you very much for this interview. And I hope that we can see each other in the near future. I genuinely do as well. And I look forward, you know, I've never been for a visit to your amazing community. And I would love to... I would love to do that at some point. So. Oh, definitely. For sure. Thank you for listening. And as always, in a world crowded with great content, if you enjoyed this episode and feel that it would be valuable for others, please share. Or leave a short review with your preferred podcast platform. It really helps to spread the word.